betrothed at three, married to the Prince of Wales, and upon his death to his brother, the newly anointed King of England, the Spanish Catherine of Aragon became Queen of England and is the person often credited with bringing Spanish work or blackwork embroidery with her from her homeland to England. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch history, art and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. Originally known as Spanish work for 50 odd years or so, the term was replaced by the word black work upon Catherine's divorce from Henry VIII in 1533. It was a technique which became highly popular throughout the reigns of Henry VIII and his daughter Elizabeth I, finally declining in popularity by the 17th century. Which explains why the portrait painter Hans Holbein the Younger painted both Henry and his many queens wearing clothing beautifully adorned with blackwork embroidery. Holbein became so adept depicting this form of needlework that double running stitch was eventually named after him. But it appears some form of black embroidery was known in England before 1500, evidenced by the writings of Geoffrey Chaucer in The Canterbury Tales, where he describes the clothing of the miller's wife, Alison. Of white too was the dainty smock she wore, embroidered at the collar all about with coal black silk, alike within and out. So if this mention was included in the 1476 initial publication of his work, then some form of black embroidery was known well before Catherine arrived on England's fair shores. What seems most likely is that Catherine, like many women of rank both before and after her, simply made this form of embroidery popular. But this delicate counted thread technique traditionally worked in black thread on a white or off-white even weave fabric such as cotton or linen has a much longer lineage harking back to its North African and Moroccan roots as the true birthplace for this style of embroidery. The Moors in North Africa were already adding decoration to their garments using motives and borders when they moved into the uh, southern Spain in the 8th century, very much influencing the needlework of Toledo, Almeria and Andalusia, where the designs were in the main geometric. Embroidery using one colour, either tan or blue, not necessarily black, was common in the Toledo region. 
And it should be noted that blackwork embroidery was also popular in other countries, such as France, with Louis XI and Charles VIII both summoning Italian embroiderers to their courts. Blackwork embroidery also appears in both French and German portraits from the beginning of the 16th century, suggesting it was a general European fashion. But it was Spain and Italy that led the way, absorbing and using Islamic design, as well as design ideas from Egypt. There were also other types of counted thread embroidery worked in black on white found in many other countries, such as the Slavonic countries of Eastern Europe, Russia, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria and Yugoslavia, where for centuries it was a peasant industry. But in Elizabethan times, black work was used mostly as a costume adornment on shirts, chemises or smocks, sleeves, ruffs, caps, as well as on household items such as cushion covers and bed curtains. Mary, Queen of Scots, Elizabeth's cousin, left behind four chemises embroidered with blackwork designs. The term blackwork refers to the technique and does not now reference the colour combinations used, especially in modern works. And the success of the design relies heavily on how well the tonal values are translated through the stitches and threads used and the even distribution of motives across the embroidered field. Large white gaps were a no-no. There are several methods needleworkers uh, could employ to create the texture, depth and shading necessary to create successful blackwork. Adding more stitches where more shading was required. Using two shades of colour within a pattern with a darker stitching in front and lighter tones behind or vice versa, creating a sense of depth. Using different thicknesses of threads or by including metallic thread, beads or sequins for special effects. As blackwork was traditionally worked in a monochromatic theme, the thread and fabric had to offer a high level of contrast, hence the light ground worked with a dark thread. Scarlet work is simply blackwork worked in red threads. Scale and proportion seemed an irrelevant factor in creating designs to stitch for blackwork embroidery. For instance, a strawberry might be the same size as an owl or a caterpillar. So most elements used would usually be of a similar size, regardless of their actual size in real life. There's also a suggestion that patterns were worked right to the edge of the fabric prior to pieces being cut for garment making. I've only found one reference to this being done, but it's interesting nonetheless. Because it makes me wonder, what did they do with all those precious offcuts? And while bands of blackwork could be reversible and were neatly worked front and back, the same can't be said for most freehand embroidery using this technique.
To the contrary, on many pieces worked freehand, the inside of the embroidery was not as clean and neat as the front of the work, with movement around the work shown by travelling threads, seemingly at the whim of the embroiderer. Now, while blackwork is most notably thought of as a decorative, it also provided function as well, serving to reinforce cuffs and hems, not forgetting that the dark coloured threads and intricate patterning would have helped hide or disguise unsightly dirt or marks. And because the design could be worked so that the front was the same as the back, it was a wonderful way to decorate items of clothing such as collars and cuffs, where both sides of the embroidery might be seen. Bands of double running or holbein stitch were traditionally used allowing for a perfectly reversible embroidery. In fact, some paintings actually show open-necked men's shirts elegantly displaying this style of embroidery front and back. High fashion for this period. But almost any stitch used in polychrome Elizabethan embroidery was fair game for freehand blackwork, including stab stitch, stem, chain, buttonhole and blanket stitch. And let's not forget the 1553 Act of Parliament forbidding anyone below the rank of a knight wearing pleated or plain shirts garnished with silk, gold or silver. So this embroidery was for those of rank who could afford it and were allowed by law to wear it. Well-preserved historic blackwork embroidery is hard to find as corrosive iron-based dyes were used to colour the silk threads and sadly no modern conservation techniques appear to be able to halt the decay. However, silk threads imported from places such as Spain contained less iron in the black dye, tending to survive in better condition. There were three common styles used in historic black work, with the earliest relying on counted stitches to work their beautiful geometric and dainty floral patterns. This is reflected in modern day black work, seen mainly in commercial patterns. Later features include larger designs of connecting curvilinear stems linking pattern-filled fruits and flowers. Stem and backstitch were sometimes used to outline the shapes before filling with the geometric counted designs. And finally, a style imitating etchings and woodcuts from the time of Henry VIII features patterns outlined and shaded with randomly worked seed stitches or rows of evenly spaced running stitch, which is actually quite effective. There are also distinct black work pattern types including diaper, repeat or linear. Diaper patterns can be turned 45 or 90 degrees without changing the original pattern. Repeat patterns feature separate repeated motives. While linear patterns utilise horizontal, vertical, diagonal or oblique stripes. And some of these motives and patterns were mirrored, reversing them either side of a garment opening or simply used to create a more balanced design.
Often, more than one pattern type or embroidery style was incorporated onto the one garment, as seen in many of the paintings from that period. Portrait of an Unknown Lady, English, painted in 1576, shows various complex blackwork embroidery designs worn on the one garment. Mirrored motifs are worked on the right and left sides of the garment opening near the neck, with a different floral design on the sheer partlet, a sleeveless fashion garment worn over the neck and shoulders, over a dress, or, to cover a low neckline, on the standing collar, and lastly a band design worked on the top of the chemise. Portrait of a Lady in an Embroidered Dress by Marcus Gearhartz the Younger comprises a variety of individual elements worked evenly across the surface so that no large white gaps appear between them. Of note in this portrait is the use of the human figure along with the floral and animal motives producing a delightfully original embroidery. And regardless of the elements used, they're all around the same size. Scale was irrelevant. Knotwork designs stand alongside the typical floral, animal and vine designs, although they appear to have been more rare. They do, however, demonstrate that just about any embroidery design or art style from this period could be executed using blackwork embroidery techniques. Many embroiderers use a laying tool, an embroidery accessory used to stroke, tension and flatten threads, ensuring they lay smoothly and parallel to each other. Japanese embroiderers called their laying tool tekubari, suggesting a worldwide usage. Some are extremely decorative and ornate, while others are simple shafts of steel, plastic, bone, glass or highly polished wood. What's important here is the smoothness of the shaft, safeguarding threads from snagging. Some even come with a pointed tip, tripling their use as a laying tool, a stiletto for piercing fabrics and as an awl for opening holes making it a very handy accessory indeed. Bone needlework tools have been around for centuries, but up-to-the-minute embroiderers of today might employ something called a trolley needle, designed to be worn on the finger. Unusual looking and a tad dangerous, but nonetheless a time-saving handy accessory if used correctly. But if you're like me and don't have a, a laying tool, a large needle will work just as well. And talking of needles, needles for blackwork embroidery must slide cleanly between the threads of the fabric. So a short tapestry needle with a long eye and a blunt point is required. Books also played an important role at this time as Queen Elizabeth encouraged improvements in both book production and printing, with a suggestion that the lavish use of black thread embroidery may have been influenced by the newly established printing presses, mimicking engravings and woodcuts. One of the first embroidery pattern books printed in England was by Thomas Geminus entitled 
Moorish and Dalmatian renewed and increased very profitable for goldsmiths and embroiderers. Now, while that must have been a title and a half to remember, let alone say, it featured the arabesque designs quickly gaining popularity among blackwork embroiderers of this time. And yet again, we see trade and exploration having its effect on design stylization, with the strange and unusual flora and animals English traders and explorers were discovering in the New World, beginning to feature as designs in other newly published books. Interestingly, the black work aesthetic never really became popular in America, and I can find no research to explain why. The pilgrims landed at Cape Cod in 1620, so the technique must have been well known to those embroiderers on board. It's a conundrum. I'm so grateful you're here with me listening to this amazing history, so thank you for your time. Stitch Safari's now reached over 3,500 downloads, and that's all thanks to you, the listener. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to learn and discover. It's fascinating. I do post interesting tidbits on Instagram and Facebook from time to time, as well as book reviews and a blog on the Stitch Safari website. So do head on over. Till the next episode of Stitch Safari. Bye for now. (laughs) 